Friends, it is a joy to be in the pulpit this morning and to resume our uh, series in Philippians. Grateful for the ministry of our brother Darwin Jordan last week as uh, he shared from Romans the adoption that is ours uh, in the gospel. And uh, we continue to talk today about the unity that is ours in the gospel. And um, I promise I'm not picking all these passages about unity. (laughs) I feel like it's a wonderful uh, uh, epistle to be preaching on. Uh, And I'm so grateful for uh, Paul's uh, beautiful recitation of the gospel truths that bind us together in this passage. There's much we can learn from them today. And so uh, our passage is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. uh, And it's on page 980 to 81 in your pew Bible, if you would like to turn and read with me. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 says this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's holy and errant and inspired word, and in it is our hope. Praise be to God. Let me pray and ask his help as we interpret it. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that uh, in an age like ours, you've given us a passage like this, a passage that really marvels at the beauty over which our brother Jesse just sang, the beauty of a Savior who infinitely high and though infinitely high looked at our infinitely low place, and he went further in the process of reconciling us to himself. Father, would this symphony of our Savior's love so mark our hearts so that we can be people who live unified as we uh, see what this word has to say to us. We ask God and proclaim our hope is in the help of your spirit, the one who illuminates us when your word is preached and the one who protects us from error. Please do so now, spirit, and please help us, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So you may not know it, but I was actually a ballet in a ballerina, not maybe not a ballerina. I'm not sure what the male term is. It's how uneducated I am. I'm so sorry for those of our friends who are far more equipped in the world of dance than I am. I was actually in a ballet in high school, and it was because I was I was a bass player in an orchestra. There was a sweet violinist, a second violinist who came and uh, they were looking for volunteer men or boys. I was a man um, to be man enough to uh, go into this ballet and serve as really a a dance partner in a ballet called Capilla. And it actually, though uh, my friend, my friend did not tell me that it involved wearing tights and makeup, that she, she, she was, she was uh, 
she hid that from me until like the night before the final performance. Um, all my friends from high school literally came just so they could laugh at me in tights and makeup. Uh, but but she, she uh, needed the help of a friend to come and basically do this partner dance and could with her. And it was something that imparted a great love of ballet to me, but it was also really awkward as I was trying to get used to what this dance required. I mean, I was literally just a giant paperweight for my friend. Uh, like she was the ballerina that kind of danced around me and I stabilized her. Uh, it was called the dance of the wheat. If you ever want to go like watch what Josh Adair did in high school for a friend who happened to be a girl. Um, but it remains a fond memory of mine uh, because uh, it, it taught me something, I think, about the gospel. Uh, the, the way that I tried to actually learn the ballet was first I had to awkwardly imitate the steps that my friend was responsible for performing. And, you know, as, as I went through the, the recitation of those, I kept like getting so focused on how messed up I looked or how off I was from the ideal that I saw in this sweet VHS we were watching that I, I just got discouraged and I, was, I, I didn't want to keep going. Uh, though I was the only person that could lift the ballerina above my head. Uh, I will take that for credit. But the problem was is that I was so focused on myself, I kept forgetting the steps, the, 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 the beautiful music and the steps that I had to follow. It was when I began to listen to the symphony of the music that my like rhythm just began to flow. Like, and it's, it's like scientifically proven, the reason there's so much of a relationship between dance and music, it's, it's based on the fact that both are organized around the pattern of rhythm found in music. You don't find dance without music because music is the most important element of a dance. And when you come to a passage like this, there's a beautiful symphony that's playing in its pages. A beautiful sound of a savior who emptied himself so that we can empty ourselves in the service of others as we live at one with them. But you can approach it as a series of dance steps that are just going to leave you focused on your own effort. Or you can approach it as a symphony to listen to and to let your life be changed by. You can be so focused on the example that this passage makes out of Jesus that he, he, Paul calls us to imitate that you forget to the, listen to the life-changing song that it actually plays about his love. You can think of it as dance steps to imitate instead of a symphony that can leave you changed because of how it causes you to move differently. And this passage is going to teach us this morning that it's only when we're transformed by the song of a humble Savior that we can dance with one another in humble unity. It's only when we're transformed by the song of a humble savior that we can be people who dance in humble unity. And that's gonna be our heading today. It's gonna be the song of the humble savior. We're gonna actually look at the second half of this passage first in verses five through 11. And then we're gonna look at the dance of unity in verses one to four. And just to remind you of the context that we're in, Philippians was a church that was rent asunder by a growing disunity. They were facing disunity among their members, but they were also facing hostile opposition from the world around them. And in this section that runs from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way to chapter 2, verse 18, it's a section that Paul is using to deal with those two issues. In verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, he's dealing with the issue of how they can live unified against outside opposition. 
But in verses uh, 1 through 11 of this passage, he's really showing how they can live together in a humble unity that serves one another as they listen to the song of the gospel. And Paul says some amazing things about Jesus in this passage. And he's singing the song of our Savior. As our brother Jesse just sang a few minutes ago, the first line of the song is that Jesus was God. Uh, he says that he was in the form of God. Though he was in the form of God, uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This passage is a passage that I think was actually an early Christian hymn in verses 6 through 11. And in this first verse, it's stating this, this fact, Jesus was God. He was in the form of God. And Paul says this is key to their thinking and mindset of how they live together. That word for form, when it's translated into English, though, makes us feel a little strange. Because it is a word that in English refers to the outside appearance of something. But in the original languages, the word is actually Jesus was in the morpher form of God. A, a word that meant he was the exact same nature of who God was. This is what scripture tells us in places like Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 and Colossians 2, 9. If you flip over to Colossians 2, 9, uh, it says that, uh, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus was God. All the fullness of the Godhead is in the person of Jesus who walked among us. And he had this before he became man. He was God, but uh, Paul says in the second line of the song, he took on the form of a slave in the likeness of men. Slave was someone, a slave was someone who had no rights in the ancient world. Someone of low status. And this passage is saying that, that Jesus took on also the form of a slave. He became man. These are the beautiful truths of the incarnation of the Savior of the world on display in verses 6 and 7 of this passage. He was God incarnate in the form of a humble baby in the manger. That's why I picked the hymn, uh, Thou Who Is Rich Beyond All Splendor. Because this is a passage that begins by singing the song of an incarnate deity who takes on flesh to come and reconcile man to himself. And he uses the same word in verse 7 for form, if you think about it. He emptied himself, we'll get to that in just a second, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness or appearance of men. The nature, the reality, the exact same likeness of a human being. That's mind-blowing if you think about it, that the God of the universe had two natures because he didn't lose his deity. He was both God, fully God and fully man. And he dwelt together in one union of person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He did this in the service of our salvation. This great song happened, he says, by, by Paul says, Jesus emptied himself. What does that even mean? If I was to ask you, we would think like Jesus is pouring out the contents of deity and filling up the contents of humanity as if he's not divine. There's been a lot of ink spilled over this passage about what emptying himself means. 
But the best way to think about it so that we don't end up in a place where we teach heresy <laughs> is uh, the theology is that Jesus emptied himself by taking on rather than taking off any of his deity. He took on and added to his divinity, to his divine nature, a human nature. The second person of the Trinity became incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We like to think more about Jesus's divinity as the divine son of God than we do about his humanity sometimes. I remember I was given a devotion uh, at First Pres back in uh, Columbia, South Carolina was an intern. And I actually taught, you know, Jesus limited himself in his deity uh, so, so that he would really know what it's like for us to be human beings, like that we have limitations, like he's a savior we can trust because he really knows what it's like to be human. And I, after I taught this uh, devotion to our whole staff team, which consisted of a world-renowned systematician, Derek Thomas, like amazing uh, seminary professor, I took Christology from him the next week. Uh, he said, I said, Derek, did I teach everything right? <laughs> or did I flirt with heresy? He goes, you may have drifted into some heresy, but then he looks at me and he goes, don't worry, we'll take care of that next week. If you think that Jesus did not have both aspects of his two natures available to him in the one person of who he was, Jesus, that he was fully God, incarnate and fully nature, the same nature as man, two distinct natures in one person, you actually will either think he's this superman who can't, who, who, who you can't, he can't really relate to you, or Maybe he's not really as divine, maybe he's not really as powerful as he can come across, but at least he understands you. And Paul is telling them that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, actually entered into history. And the way that he did that, Paul is, is sort of enlightening what was Jesus's mindset as he did this. He tells us in verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped onto, but instead emptied himself. We know what emptied himself means. It means that he took on a human nature for himself. But his motivation in doing so was that he looked at all of his prerogatives and privileges as the divine son of God who existed before the foundations of the world. His equal status and stature. And he said, I don't have to grasp onto that. That word for grasp in the original languages, when used with the word, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped onto. It referred to a situation where someone saw an opportunity for personal profit that they could exploit or advance themselves, something to desperately cling to in order to show your significance to others. So Jesus, get this, Jesus, the one who deserved all worship, honor, praise, and glory, veiled his glory in flesh because he didn't think that it was worth using for the benefit of himself but he took on flesh in his person that he might serve human beings. The God of the universe was incarnate and emptied himself 
that he might become a servant for us. Mark 10, verses 43 to 45 say, um, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus's own understanding of who he was. It's a mystery that we don't have time to go into all of its depths this morning. But if there's anything that you take from this fact, it means that Jesus did not insist on his station, but he was thinking of others, of you and I, his people, as the eternal son of God, whom he wanted to redeem in order that he might show the love of his heavenly father to us and welcome us into his presence forever as his bride, who he ransomed, paid a price for, and secured for us to dwell with him forever. He laid down all of his preferences and prerogatives and humbled himself. He chose to take on the status and position of a lowly slave of a man. But he didn't just stop there. He went further. You and I typically have responses when we think about the Son of God becoming man. And our typical response might be to someone of so great a status and a privilege and a person of who God is, that's so beneath you, right? Jesus would say, exactly, you're right. It's so beneath me. And I'm going to show you how much further I'm going to go. The reason we use that phrase, it's so beneath you, is because we treat it as a form of humiliation to the person we're referring to. You're humiliating yourself. That's so beneath you. You should not act that way. And Jesus is saying, I will humiliate and embarrass myself for my people because I will not insist upon my status as something to serve me, but rather I will use my position as a way to serve them because he was the only one that could. He was the only one that could. And so instead of desperately clinging on to his posture out of obedience and love to the Father and for his people. Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he became nothing and endured the cross, despising its shame. That's what Jesus thinks of us saying, this is beneath him. He despises that mindset that says this is beneath him because he's overwhelmed by the joy of what he's actually purchasing. The joy of sinners saved by grace. And he took on the form of a slave because there are no depths that he would go to. And Paul is thinking in terms of Isaiah's passage, Isaiah 53. Alec Motier says the parallel Paul is striking is one that echoes back to Isaiah's words of the suffering servant. He poured himself out to death and consciously consigned himself to a foreseen situation. Jesus voluntarily lowered himself, humiliated himself, and made himself a public object of scorn in the cross in his ransom of the bride of heaven, of you and me. He was willfully covered up under the shame of his low state because he intentionally humbled himself further by death on the cross. So not only was he God and was he a man, but he was a slave who was willing to go to any depths to demonstrate what he was showing to us, the love of his father. He did this because it was the only thing that would make us right with God. He did this with full knowledge of his high and privileged status. And he did this because he loved you and me. 
And if you want to know what Jesus's mindset was like on the cross as he hung there and suffered in your place and mine, he was humming. He was humming this song. There's no depth that I will go to, will not go to, to save my people. But that's not all that happened for him. He was a God, he was man, he was a servant, and he became exalted. His status was reversed. Christ's obedience drew a divine response. The Father vindicated him, giving the loftiest status over all creation. Lord and King, God's own name he gave to his son Jesus. Not that Jesus became divine again after leaving his divinity, but Jesus received the public recognition by the Father in heaven. When he ascended to the right hand, as our father, as our, not father, friend, uh, Davis pointed out in the affirmation of faith, God said, you deserve this name that's above any other, my very own name, and you will receive all the recognition of it. Not because he didn't have it, but because it was not yet recognized. Jesus Tim Keller says, gained his identity as the exalted king and Lord of heaven by his service in the lowest of places. He did this by actually letting go of his status and took the lowest status possible and was vindicated by God himself. Don't you see what this is saying? I mean, think about it. The reason we typically don't go low in the service of others is because we think the cost is too great and we'll never survive it. Jesus went low and then lower, and he said, the cost is worth it because he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He has survived it, and he lives forever. And it's his life in us that actually produces this same sort of other-centered service. He became someone because he lived for something bigger than himself. So that the way to be saved in life and keeping from being a slave to others is to actually live up by going down. The way up is now the way down in the kingdom of heaven. This is so contra to our own understanding of how we live in relationship. We think, I have to sort of meet you on this mountain of merit. I've gone up and I've climbed and I'm really tired to get there, but, but at least I'm here and now I have your exalted status that you'll give me. You and I, live and serve for others because of the affirmation and life it will bring us. Because we're trying to grasp at status instead of resting in the status that we've been given. But Jesus shows us that we can actually let go of all of our statuses that would define us as we seek to become people who serve others even if it happens at great cost to us personally. The reason this works is because you come to realize that because God vindicated Christ for his humble service and lovingly exalted him, you can be sure God will also freely provide all you could ever need as you take the status of being a servant of others. That's how you can let go of your own interests and seek to Lower yourself in the service of others. That's the symphony of the song that Paul is writing about. 
that Jesus, the Son of God, loved you and I and was willing to go to infinite depths of humiliation. And he was proven worthy of doing it in his exaltation. And he sits there right now. That's why Paul actually calls them to the dance of humble unity. That's the symphony that he's calling them to hear. But then he calls them to dance humble unity in verses 1 to 4. He says you're to be of one mind. Sorry, look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. The same mind that he's actually referenced in verse 5 where he says, uh, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. The same mind of other-centered service that will not go to any, that will not stop at any depth perception in order to lift others over us. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. These two words first meant, uh, selfish ambition was a word that uh, came in Greek from using to refer to spinners and weavers. It was later used of people in political office who would spin any tale in any underhanded way to preserve their own status and position. That's what selfish ambition means. Vain conceit is literally the word in Greek that means empty glory. Do nothing from empty glory or power games is what he's saying. And that was the problem in the Philippian church is that they had forgotten the status that they had received in the gospel. And there was open conflict between people like Euodia and Syntyche that Paul is calling them to reconcile over because they have a shared status as God's eternally loved children. So why would you have to squabble over other lesser resources when you've been given the riches of all that you need to live as one with another? And you have to understand, like, this, these words for selfish ambition and vain conceit, this is what you and I do everywhere we go and in every circle we run in. C.S. Lewis talks about this in an essay titled The Inner Ring. It describes the experience and desire of us all at various stages of life. We want to be accepted by the in crowd because we use people to gain status. To feel or excluded or out of it is to feel miserable, yet the desire to be in can make you say things you would not otherwise say, or do things you would not otherwise do. The desire to be on the inside strikes all men at certain periods and many men at all periods of life. It's one of the most dominant elements in life, the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of equally being left out. Lewis says, as long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You're trying to peel an onion because if you succeed there, you think there will be nothing left. Until you conquer the fear of an outsider, an outsider you will remain because there's always a tighter group that you could find. There's always a status as an outsider that you could meet. If you get in, the initial rush of excitement will not last. Sooner or later, you will have to look for a new ring to enter because you, are the, you and I are the people that cling to status so that we might be equal with others and refuse to empty ourselves. That's our story. And when we do that, that keeps us from living as one with each other. We're usually uh, only willing to lower ourselves and let go of our own, own interests in direct relation to how much we think it will cost. 
But Paul is saying, look, you can be one with each other no matter the cost. Even if you think it means you lose your status. And think about us. We are people who believe that image is everything in our life. I mean, there was a commercial, Andre Agassi, when he was a teenager. He lived the rest of his career actually trying to escape this commercial. But it was a picture of him doing all these amazing sort of tennis shots on a commercial uh, for Canon. And the last picture is him stepping out of a Lamborghini Ferrari when, um, when the camera pans in on him in a white suit, this like powerfully like magnetic image and looking over the tip of his sunglasses and saying, image is everything. That came to define his career. We are people who try to make our world reflect the image and status that we want. Think about this. Like, what is your social media profile about? It's about all the things that you like. And all the things that you dislike don't end up being a part of your profile, do they? And that's sort of the economy of how we relate to one another. We treat one another as if I've got these likes, and if you got these likes, then we'll be friends. But Paul is calling us to such a deeper, richer experience of belonging and relationship to one another. Because it's so easy to be unified over something that actually can't unify us. Take sports teams. I know that there's a huge contingency of Mississippi State fans here. How do you feel about your Ole Miss friends, right? They're tolerable people, right? And we only tolerate them as much as they don't threaten our desire for glory for our team. We do this with any number of things, friends. And we're all just simply trying to go into an inner ring by going out to serve. What are the signs that you are using the church as a place to go deeper into an inner ring by going out to serve? Well, when someone isn't grateful for how you serve them, do you feel kind of snubbed for how they don't recognize it? Do you have hurt feelings when others don't reciprocate a like-minded care for you? Is your time full of activities and serving of others, but you often feel empty and overcommitted, wondering how you can ever drum up enough energy to meet all of your commitments? Is it hard for you to receive care from others because of what you think it might indebt them to you for? or how it might indebt you to them. Do you vilify people with legitimate interests because they don't think like you? Friends, in an age like ours and in a church like this, we all try to take our rings that we're a part of and make them reflect us. But when we do that, everyone else becomes a threat if that's the status that we're seeking. And what Paul is saying is like, that's the difference between living for a soundbite versus a symphony. If you get a group with enough sound bites together, it makes this really dissonant, cacophonous, like just crazy kind of sound where you can't even think and no one can really listen to each other. Or it's like living for a stream of unending commercials instead of the really good TV stories that you really want to watch instead. And Paul is inviting them to hear the music of the gospel of the God who emptied himself and took on flesh by taking on flesh 
in order to humiliate himself for us. And it comes by the song of our union and communion with him. Paul is saying this is a mindset that we are able to have, not because of a status that we've achieved, but because of a love that we have received. When you and I come to faith in Christ, we have a real and living and vital union with Jesus. So that the very life that's demanded of us as we move out towards others is actually met inside of us. That's why Paul begins this passage by saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ or comfort from love or participation in the spirit or affection and sympathy, these are actually the things that our union with Jesus buys us. Encouragement. It's, it's the idea that they belong to the Lord who bought and secured all of their blessings. They are in him. They are his adopted children. They participate by the Spirit in the fellowship of the Spirit. They're bound to Christ by the gift of the Spirit because he who dwelt in Jesus dwells in them to empower them to serve and think of others. Affection and sympathy, those are words that could be used to describe Jesus, who's gentle and lowly, who does not snuff out a smoking flax or a bruised reed break. And Paul's not saying if this is there. The way he uses if is he's saying since this is what Jesus bought us because we are one with him, then you can actually think of others Stop gripping or grasping after a status where you hope to feel equal. And you can lay yourself and your interests down in the service of meeting others where they are. You can try to do this as a bunch of steps to a song, friend. You can treat it as the dance steps and it looks really imitatable. But the thing about music, what makes it so, so, so life-changing is it actually reaches a point in your brain where it connects with you via your emotions. And your emotions change. You, you walk away from a beautiful symphony like what happened in Capilia because you hear the beautiful sound that changes you and actually enables you to dance to the rhythm. Everything else is just awkward clunking around. And it's only when we are transformed by the song of our humble Savior by glancing at him, beholding that wondrous mystery, that we can actually be changed to dance the dance of humble unity. Leonard Bernstein was a famous conductor and educator in the United States who received worldwide acclaim. He was one of the first American uh, conductors to do so. He directed the New York Philharmonic conducted concerts by some of the world's leading orchestras and wrote symphonies and music for Broadway hits such as West Side Story and Candide. His obituary in the New York Times called him one of the most talented and successful musicians in American history. But once he was asked which instrument was the most difficult to play, and he said the second fiddle, that's the second violin. I can get plenty of first violinists but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. 
Friends, that's only found through the humility that comes when we see a Savior who has bridged the chasm that stands between us, humiliated himself, and guaranteed that when we serve others, we will be people who find life and joy in his presence as we actually forget about ourselves. Only that gospel can change us. Let us pray and ask him to change us now. Gracious Lord, as we come and think about what Paul has called us to in this unity, would we marvel at the majesty of a beautiful Savior who has lowered himself to infinite depths, condescended in all humility, and did not grasp on to his status, but used it as a position to serve. Father, help us be people who see others not as competing sound bites, but as fellow players in the symphony who share a beautiful song about your love with the world, because it's only by your love that we can be changed. We ask that you would so mark us and empower us to live by your spirits. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.